Well, greetings and welcome to The Dividing Line. My name is James White, coming to you from, um, <laughs> to be honest with you, I think I'm in North Carolina. <laughs> Sometimes you're just not even sure. Uh, <clears throat> it starts getting blurry after a while. Uh, but uh, drove down from uh, somewhere in Virginia, too. <laughs> Not big places, you know. Uh, if you're, if, if if I was looking for staying at fancy spots, I, KOAs generally are not fancy spots, and uh, this is definitely not a. There's KOA um, holiday and KOA journey, and the holidays are fancier than the journeys. I'm on a journey right now, so I don't really take note of any of that stuff. I've never been in a pool at a KOA. Um, I do want to find the, uh, the laundry. I think it's over there. <laughs> Hope so. <laughs> do need to, do need to do some laundry tonight. Um, but, uh, other than that, I don't really care too much about all the rest of it. As long as it's got electricity, water, and sewer. That's all that matters. <laughs> it's just, all the rest of it is somewhat on the academic side of things. So, anyways, uh, great to have you with us. We, uh, I still have people who aren't, who are, I like, are like, so are you seriously in an RV? Look, if you've got that background, that's the RV. That's is, this is an RV. Yes, this is, uh, there's the roof up there. Um, this is the front of the unit. Uh, there are sadly, uh, many deceased bugs <laughs> on the other side of that wall because <laughs> that's the, that's the front end. That's the business end. That's what hits the air. And, uh, Takes out some pretty big nasty bugs along the way, and uh, uh, we got to get that cleaned off each trip, and because uh, uh, it's best not to leave that sitting there in the sun because <laughs> bug guts baked on. <laughs> not a good, not a good combination. Just stuff you learn uh, when you uh, when you do the RV life, and uh, so I will be parking um, this little beastie in uh, Atlanta. And uh, then tomorrow night, I've got to I've got to pack luggage. You know how long it's been since I've packed luggage. Uh, I'm gonna forget stuff. You just there's just no way. I mean, I had gotten really good at that, but it's been years now, and I'm gonna forget stuff. Uh, hopefully not underwear, because that would be the worst thing to forget. I think. Um, but I. I'm going to have to pack stuff up for three days because uh, my dear wife is flying into Atlanta. Uh, she flies. She doesn't uh, care about all that stuff. And uh, uh, so we're going to be staying uh, at the hotel there uh, for G3. And so I've got to pack up what I need from here and, and bring it with me down to the convention center. <clears throat> and uh, once again, I know I've mentioned this on... Uh, Wednesday, starting at 9 o'clock in the morning, there is a pre-conference. Jeffrey Johnson starts it off. I speak in the afternoon. There are 45-minute presentations uh, from people who are staff members, uh, faculty members at uh, Grace Bible Theological Seminary. And then at the end of all that will be a... They're even calling it a mini-debate. And I'm like... Um, it can't be a mini debate. I have a specific topic. My topic is government overreach, masks, vaccines, and the Navy SEALs. And they asked me to do that because of our involvement with the SEALs and the stance that we took from the start. Uh, Apologia never closed. Um, we, you know, certainly had a f 
few people in the congregation that um, wore masks, but I would say they might have represented 1%, 2% at the most. Um, and certainly today, I don't know of anybody who goes, oh man, I wish I had gotten the vaccine. I'm going to run out and get it now. I don't know anybody. Uh, pretty much everybody that I know who withstood the pressure is just going, whew, uh, when you see all of the stuff going on and all the excess mortality. And and, and I, I, honestly, I don't think we've even begun to see everything that we will eventually see. Well, if we are allowed to eventually see it. Let's put it that way. So um, I'm going to be talking about that, um, but I'm not going to be presenting a defense of uh, post-millennialism or anything related to that. <clears throat> so I'm not really sure what the debate part's going to be because I know that other people will be making positive presentations for their perspectives um, in their presentations. Um, but I won't have that opportunity. So I'm not really sure what that's going to turn out to be, but we'll see. Uh, it'll be, it will not be boring. I can guarantee, <laughs> guarantee that. So that's on Wednesday. Then on Thursday, uh, everything gets going at full speed and, uh, we'll be at our, uh, we have a booth. Alpha Omega has a booth. Jason Lyle is going to be at G3 for the first time. And so I'm definitely going to pop over to Jason's uh, booth for a while and say hi to him. Uh, Jason Lyle's the smartest man I've ever met. And if you don't know Jason Lyle and uh, Biblical Creation Institute, you need to go by, and you're going to be there, go by his, uh, his uh, booth and say hello and say, James White said, you're the smartest man alive and I wanted to come see you. And he will smile and rue the day that you met me. So um, <laughs> go see Go see Jason Lyle um, at his booth. And then, of course, uh, Jeffrey Rice is going to be there. Um, and uh, he will have some really cool stuff available there. And I know he's made up at least a few of his now incredibly popular and famous Johnny Cash rebinds. And I had, I guess I had seen some of them in passing, but I really hadn't made all the connections. Uh, but he does this uh, <clears throat> all black, black ribbons, just velvety black leather. I think it's the, he calls it double shot or something like that. Um, and then dyes the pages, edges black as well. And he calls it the Johnny Cash, you know, the man in black. So um, it, is, it is not the Bible named Sue. <laughs> so we can put that one to rest right now. But it's uh, it's it's the Johnny Cash. So uh, go by uh, Post Tenebrous Lux uh, Rebinding. They've got they'll have their uh, stuff there too. And I normally go over and hang out for a few minutes over there uh, as well and say hi to folks. And um, we'll be taking all of we'll be doing all the the selfies and the book signings and and I will be at the GBTS. Well, I'm supposed to be at the GBTS uh, booth on Friday. I've got to double check the exact time on that. Um, but after the debate on Wednesday, who knows? <laughs> I, I, they, they may have burned me an effigy by then. And, uh, and, and so that won't happen. So we'll see. Uh, but, uh, yeah, pray for me as I try to get there 
by nine o'clock in the morning on Wednesday because um, Josh Bice just sent me what he called a pro tip on how to get to downtown and avoid the worst traffic. So I'm going to try to follow his instructions. And then he made me feel much better uh, when he told me that they have special valet parking that you can arrange, which they've arranged for me, uh, when you have a huge truck <laughs> that's you know almost seven feet tall, 21 feet long. Um, and uh, because Josh has a truck that's even bigger, his, I think, is a 350. Mine's 2,500, he'd be a 3,500. So... Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it's necessarily physically bigger, but it's supposed to have stronger springs. Because uh, he had a 40-some-odd-foot RV that he was pulling. Mine's only 35. Anyway, uh, his would be parked down there as well. So he's already arranged all that stuff. That makes me feel a lot better. Um, I, I just, didn't, just didn't want some kid jumping in that truck and vroom, down, into, down into the depths of a... I don't know where. Uh, because she doesn't fit into places like that. She's just too big. So, uh, anyway, so that's coming up at G3. Looking forward to seeing all of you. Um, this past weekend... Uh, wait a minute. Let, before, I, before I start talking about the conference and the debate, because I do, I do need to talk about the debate. Um, before I do that, I want to uh, do something that, again, some, some folks could be like, ah, I don't care about any of this stuff. All right, fine. This has obviously been a major part of my life for a long time. Um, I have ridden a bicycle 161,000 miles now. And I don't do as much riding outside anymore. Um, uh, we've sort of lost control of my heart situation. Uh, not in a, oh, I'm about to die type thing, but in a um, who knows when it's going to go crazy type type thing. For years, we had that very much locked down, but as I have aged, that has now changed, and uh, sometimes it'll just hit, and it really impacts, it impacts the regularity of my training, and the main thing it does is, you know, only a few years ago, and I would still love to be able to do this, I'm sort of mourning the loss to be able to do this, but I would get up at 1.30 in the morning during the summers, and I'd be on the road by 2.30, and I'd do a metric century, I, I'd ride hundred kilometers uh, by the time the sun rose. And I loved that. Uh, being out there in the desert, uh, dodging coyotes, <laughs> literally. Um, I love that. And I get a lot of stuff listened to. And um, it's not that I can't do those rides anymore. I can, but I don't have the confidence to do it. Uh, if, if something happens heart-wise, uh, 50 miles from home at 3.30 in the morning, uh, my wife's not going to even, you know, sure, she's going to come get me, but it's going to take her a long time to get there. And so I'm doing a lot more of my riding indoors now for obvious reasons. And I'm very, very thankful that there are options now to where I can get just as good a workout. Um, uh, riding in Zwift or RGT or uh, Ruby um, on a smart trainer as, uh, as I can outdoors. And to be honest with you, after COVID hit, Riding outdoors is much more dangerous. Um, I used to be able to take what's called the Arizona Canal to get out of the city and get out where it's safer to ride. Ever since COVID, the canal is basically un unrideable. All the underpasses have been turned into homeless drug centers. Uh, they're not safe. Um, between the people, the dogs, all the stuff, 
but they put down there the excrement, the urine, uh, and the needles. Uh, it's just it's just not safe to do it. And so stuff has changed. It really, really has. So anyways, point being, uh, I am a cyclist, and that means I'm interested in the sport as well. And uh, there are three grand tours each year. So unlike football fans who have one day of the Super Bowl, we have nine weeks because a grand tour is a three-week stage race. Um, you have two rest days, but there, there are 20, 21 stages, and they normally cover uh, well over, you know, around 22, 2300 miles, depending on how much climbing is in them. And uh, the first one's in May, the Giro d'Italia, so the Tour of Italy. The, the big daddy is the Tour de France, of course, in July. And then the Vuelta a España, the Tour of Spain, is in August, September. And of course, COVID messed all, the, all of them up too. But uh, I've been following these for years. Uh, 10 years ago, Chris Horner, an American, won the Vuelta a España. And I thought that was great because Chris Horner was 42 stinking years old when he won the Vuelta in 2013. And all us old guys are like, yeah, we can still do it. It was great. So I was really pulling for him. But um, uh, this year, there has been one team that has become completely predominant. For a long time, it was called Sky. Then they, they changed their name to uh, Ineos, uh, the Ineos Grenadiers. They're being eclipsed now uh, by a team called Jumbo Visma, which is a European, uh, sponsored by a European uh, grocery store chain. And they have the two biggest general, we'll call general category, uh, riders. Uh, Jonas Vingergo, who, interestingly enough, worked in a fish factory until just a few years ago. He, he, they would take fish in and he sorted fish. That's what he did. Until it was found out he could really ride a bike. And, I mean, he went to the top of his sport at an incredible speed. And he's won the last two Tour de France uh, editions. Tadej Pogaccio won the two before that. And they also have Primoz Roglic uh, from Slovenia. And uh, he's just been a, a, a force for a long, long time now. And he's won the Vuelta, I think, four times. And he won the Giro uh, this year. So the point is, Jumbo Visna, Vis, Visma won the Giro with Primoz Roglic in May. They won the Tour de France with Jonas Vingago in July. And then they brought both Roglic and Vingago to the Vuelta a España, which made everybody go, this will be interesting. When you have two leaders, they both want to win. Um, what happens? Because I, I know a lot of people don't understand this. This is a team sport. I mean, you look at stuff like football, uh, rugby, uh, soccer, football in the rest of the world, uh, baseball. These are all team sports. And everybody goes, yeah, you need to have good pitching, good catching. You need to have a good quarterback. You have to have wide receivers, got a good, good defensive line. Da, 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 da. Depends on what sport you're looking at. Uh, believe it or not, cycling is very much a team sport in the Grand Tours. You're, you're riding literally 100 to 120 miles per day per day for three weeks. 
okay? Being in the Peloton, drafting, having a team around you is absolutely vital. You cannot win one of these things on your own. You can't just go in there and I'm not going to worry about anybody else. I'm just going to blow everybody away. Can't be done. Um, the, the, the sport is just too competitive. So everybody was wondering what was going to happen. And for many years, there's been a American from Durango, Colorado, by the name of Sepp Kuss. And Sepp is what's called a super domestique, which means he's a worker. And it's his job to protect the GC riders. How do you protect somebody? Well, you um, literally, literally, for example, if the GC guy, uh, it's it's a, at a really important part in a climb, and their bike breaks, you jump off yours and give him yours and wait for the car to come get you and get you a new bike. Um, but mo more normally, you sit in front of that GC guy and you draft for him. You break the wind for him so it's easier for him to get up the hill and you just kill yourself. Literally, you just, when, when you see these domestiques, when they get done with their pull at the front, sometimes they come to a complete stop. They are wiped which means they don't end up normally very high up in the standings because, you know, then they lose a whole lot of time going the rest of the way up. Uh, but he's called a super domestique and probably recognized as the best in the business. Well, here's the point. This is why I'm telling you all this. Stuff. Um, Vingigo, and here's, by the way, here, um, here. Um, that's not what I wanted. I wanted uh, this. Sorry about that. Here's... Uh, Here's, here's what happened. Uh, three guys in the colorful jerseys. The guy in the yellow is, is Vingigo. The yellow jersey is the winner of the Tour de France. The guy on the right, that's Primoz Roglic. He's in the pink jersey, winner of the Giro d'Italia. The guy in the middle is Sepkus, and he is in a red jersey. The red jersey is the winner of the Vuelta a España. And so one team won all had, one, had different guys win each one of the Grand Tours. Now, oh, stop that. So, but what happened was, that's not what their plan was. A SEP got into a, what's called a breakaway. The breakaway got a bunch of time. Everybody expected him to lose it in the time trial, but he didn't. He, he defended it. And so they, they go into the last week and all the discussion was about, okay, they have the leader. And in fact, they're one, two, three. But they have two guys who are the GC. You know, they've won Grand Tours. But every Grand Tour that they won, all four that Roglic won, and the two that Vingigo won, guess who pulled them through those things? Sepp Kuste. They wouldn't have won those without Sepp Kuste. And so it was amazing to me to watch the ethical and moral discussion going on in the cycling world when Roglic and Vingigo kept getting closer and closer and closer to taking Sepp out of the red jersey. Uh, because they, you know, top of mountains, all of a sudden they'd take off and get time on their teammate. You're not supposed to do that. And it was fascinating to watch the morality play 
that ended up taking place um, in regards to cycling. And did these guys owe anything to Sepkus? Uh, if you had seen him on the 20th stage of the Tour de France, he crashed at high speed. He had blood all over his face. Most of this tour, most of the, of the Vuelta, he, had band- he still had bandages over his left eye because he had gotten torn up so bad. And most people figured, oh, he won't go to the Vuelta now. He's just all beat up. And he's like, oh, no, <laughs> no. In fact, that's the amazing thing. He rode all three Grand Tours. Most professionals, you don't, you don't have enough time to recover. But he did. He survived it. And he won it. And eventually, Jumbo Visma, the pressure on them, what's amazing, they did the right thing. They restrained Vingigo and Roglic. And I'm hoping, you know, I, I'm, I, I like to think the best of people. I'm hoping that when they rode across the line together, you know, one, two, three, and they have their arms around each other and all the rest of this stuff, I, I'm hoping they really meant that. There's a lot of people that are like, man, they must have really threatened Vingigo and Roglic uh, with a gun uh, to get them to not take the jersey away from Sepkos because the team would have just been ravaged if they had by everybody in the sport and everything else. Uh, Christian Vandeville uh, had, had, was commenting on it, and he, he said the same thing. So it was fascinating, though, to see the, the morality play. And because I'm sitting back going, y'all don't really have any, any basis for saying all this stuff. Um, you don't realize how much you're borrowing from the Christian worldview for all the categories you're using here. So it is interesting to see it. And again, a lot of that goes back years and years and years. The traditions and cycling and stuff like that. Where did that come from? Well, primarily from the Christian worldview. And um, But it was fascinating to see. And congratulations to Sepkus. Um, he says, <laughs> in fact, it was really funny. The mics were open at the at the finish line with the final stage. And so he's it's done. He's won it. And his wife's there. <laughs> and I hear... It, very clearly, you hear her say, don't you ever do this to me again. <laughs> and and Seth has pretty much said, he says, hey, I'm back to my domestique role. I, I My intention in 2024 is to be leading um, Primoz Roglic and Jonas Vingago up the mountains in the Grand Tours again, and it won't be me going for the wins. I will be doing what I've done all along. I'm perfectly happy with that. Um, this was awesome. This was incredible. But I'm not going to become a GC contender. I'm not going to be one of the one of those types of guys. And that's sort of the kind of guy he is. I don't see any evidence he's a Christian, um, given some of the language I've heard uh, on, on open mics. But um, he does seem just just to be a really really um, giving guy. He's always asking other people how they're doing and stuff like that. So yeah certainly pray for all of them i'd love to see all of them come to know know the lord they were uh, they would they would be great testimonies at that point so anyway just wanted to mention that um was was at the gospel at war uh conference um this weekend obviously i i opened it on thursday night uh you know i forgot to check didn't have time to check i don't know how much has been put on um, uh, 
Mid-Atlantic Ref Reformation Society's um, uh, YouTube page. Uh, I don't know if they're doing editing or something. I, I, I just don't know. And actually, I'm not 100% certain exactly how the debates can be made available. And my understanding is it's still on our Twitter feed uh, because we live streamed it. And let me just mention, why did we do that? They, they weren't going to do it. But when I walked in Thursday night, before I gave my first talk, I look over, and I know you can't see it sitting here, but there is an ATEM Mini Pro sitting right here. That's how I'm, you'll see me reach over here and do stuff and make mistakes and things like that. That's why I put the Alpha Omega logo up instead of the screen and blah, blah, blah. Um, but I know how to use this. Uh, the fact that you're able to watch me right now demonstrates I at least have some level of proficiency with it. And so they're using the exact same software. And so I was like, so are you all going to live stream it? And I said, well, we've told people we're not going to. I said, well, um, I know a lot of people would really like to watch it. Um, how about we live stream it? Uh, we'll, we'll, we can, I'll use the software and we'll set it up the way we set it up and we can live stream it. So that's what we ended up doing. And so if you did get a chance to watch it, uh, that was why it happened. As I happened to look back and go, I've seen that screen before. <laughs> it's right in front of me right now. Um, and so that's how, and I don't know if that has been posted yet outside of that or how that's going to work. I imagine Rich is probably communicating with folks somewhere. Um, hmm. Okay. Uh, Rich says he has a list of stuff for me to pack. For me to pack? You mean like, uh, yeah, it's, it's still on our Twitter thing. You mean stuff that I need to bring from the from the RV? I'm I'm supposed to be putting. St I don't got much room, man. I got very 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 little room. Uh, so be. Uh, oh, I got to bring the cameras. Oh, good grief! I didn't. What am I supposed to put them in? Okay, you are now seeing live right now. Uh, that Rich did not communicate with me <laughs> that I was going to be needing to pack. Anything other, because I have one little duffel bag and my garment bag. It's all I got. Um, so the cameras will be in uh, plastic bags, plastic grocery bags, um, and uh, that's how they'll that's how they'll have to get where they're going, I guess. Um, so, but yeah, but you, you've got cables and lights and, and oh man, dude, dude, uh, we're gonna have to have a conversation about this. <laughs> I'm just starting to go, mmm, mmm, mmm. Not sure that that. Mm, uh, not sure that's gonna work, um, but we'll have to figure it out later on. Anyway, um, about the debate. So the debate was on Saturday afternoon from 3.30 to 6.30 approximately. Unusual time of day, I'll, I'll have to admit, it felt like nighttime in there. Uh, there weren't any windows in the venue we were at, and so it was interesting, and I think both myself and Dr. Cole sort of defaulted to saying things like this evening and stuff like that um, before very long. Um, this was his first debate, okay? So it's not like you can go back and go, you know, this is how he handles this, this is how he handles that. The only thing I had to go on was his, were his books, and then I watched a number of presentations that he has made um, in evangelical 
mainly Calvary Chapelish type of um, context. And so I knew there were a couple different directions he could go. And if he went the direction of most of his presentations, um, I sort of expected a, a pretty heavily personal story narrative because that's what he likes to do. That is his books after, well, even a Christian gay single, um, gay Christian single or something like that. Um, even uh, even that was heavy on the personal narrative and background story and and things like that. So I was sort of expecting that, but what happened was um, he was very well prepared. And what he did is he looked up the organization that was putting this on and realizing that we're a bunch of raving Calvinists, uh, he modified his presentation uh, to be more uh, communicative and um, uh, convincing, I guess to us folks. He even, even quoted the famous Abraham Kuyper uh, line. You know, there's not a single um, square inch of, of the world where, over which Christ does not cry, mine. Um, which I'd never, ever, ever, ever heard him quote before. But he did in his opening statement. Um, and he was always within time, um, was a very clear speaker, and uh, so very impressive on, on that level. But I told a number of people, and I think I mentioned on this program, that I knew this was going to be a very challenging debate for one simple reason. The vast majority of people, from a Reformed perspective, a conservative, Bible-believing, um, evangelical perspective, have never read or even listened to the side B gay Christian narrative. And as a result, and I had heard this over and over again coming into the debate from people on my side. Oh, this is be a slaughter. This will be easy for you. You don't even have to prepare for this, etc., etc., etc. And I'm like, no, no, no. That's not the case. This is going to be very challenging. The argumentation utilized by the side B advocates is um, nuanced and it, it cannot be responded to without understanding what the, the presuppositional claims it's making are and especially to understand the role of external sources of authority, specifically modern psychological categories such as sexual identity, um, all that stuff that has become central to transgender issues and all the, the sexual revolution, um, that, that comes in and yet it, it, it comes in in Revoice, in, in the writers for Revoice and for the organization that Dr. Coles works for, that comes in in the context of, but we affirm a biblical theology of marriage and sexuality. 
And I, I think most evangelicals just go, well, that's just not possible. You just, all you have to do is say, you can't do that. <laughs> um, but they do do that. And so how do you respond to that? And so what I did uh, for the debate was, again, and, and, and I'm sure many people will fault me for how I handled the debate. I just simply say to anybody who does, fine and dandy, I'll be happy to hear what you're going to do um, when you engage with these folks. I'll, I'll, we'll see how it works then. And that's fine. Uh, someone might do a far better job than I did. But my focus, because of the, the way that the thesis was stated, um, my focus was on Scripture. Is gay Christian a biblically acceptable identity for a member of Christ's church? And so you could, you could argue, I didn't try to just use this as a sledgehammer, but you could argue that to win the thesis statement, um, any utilization of any source of authority other than Scripture violates the statement, biblically acceptable. But of course, then you have... <laughs> it's Believe it or not, there's actual controversy over what's biblical, what's biblicist, um, all that kind of stuff. So, I believe that the way to deal with this or any other subject is to bring the word of God to bear. And so when I look at scriptural passages, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 is the key text. It plainly is talking about homosexuals, whether, whether it's effeminate and homosexuals or Malakoi and Arsimakoitai are taken together as a full description of a male homosexual relationship, uh, aggressor and passive. Either way, the text is making reference to saying that there were in the church in Corinth former homosexuals, former Malakoi, former Arsenokoitai, and then it says, such were some of you, not such are some of you. But I was well aware of the fact that the side B people have read that passage. And they have a response. They have a way of, of arguing from the other, other perspective. And that is, they say, well, yeah, that's why we are committed to celibacy. That's why we do not uh, push for gay marriage. Or at least, okay, some of them might, but at least what they would say is, um, I, I do not believe that I can seek out a same-sex partner. They tend to sort of leave that option open for others. Um and I cannot engage in same-sex sexual activity. And so they would say the reason they call that, that, that he calls himself a gay Christian, and, and here's where the language came in, is that 
he has the capacity to experience the temptation of same-sex attraction. And that's that's a big thing. Most of us never talk and most of us don't think about this this issue in the category of having the capacity to experience temptation in a certain way. That's not the normal language we use and it's not the language of scripture either, but they would say that's because Paul's dealing in a different context. And and honestly, what's really behind it is Paul didn't know what we know today. Paul didn't know about um monogamous loving same-sex relationships or the whole concept of identity and and things like that. And and again, it depends on depends on the person you're talking to how they put all these blocks together as as to exactly where they're going to come from. So one of the one of the obvious responses that people always give when you hear gay Christian and they reject that is, well, am I supposed to call myself a, an adulterous Christian? Am I supposed to call myself a thieving Christian? Am I supposed to call myself a, a greedy Christian? You know, and you just take one of these sins and you plop it in front of Christian. Okay. And the response from side B advocates is but that isn't the point what Paul was talking about was action they had engaged in these things and we're not engaging in these things and so we're only talking about um, desires we're only talking about attractions we're not talking about actions and so I'm simply saying that I am a follower of Jesus who can experience temptation towards sexual sin in a same-sex context, and you are a follower of Jesus who can experience temptation to sin in a heterosexual context. And you heard this in debate numerous times. And then they'll say, and the one's not worse than the other. It's just it's just the area that I'm tempted in is different than the area that you're tempted in. But we're all te- we're all subject to temptation, and so that's why there shouldn't be this. You know that that's why I should be able to call myself a gay Christian. I'm celibate. I'm not following through on that. I recognize what Bible teaches, and therefore I should be able to be in leadership in the church, lead in worship, whatever else it might be. And that's not how most people have ever even thought about any of this. And so as you listen to the to the cross-examination, and it sort of ended up, when I saw that it worked out this way, I, I said, eh, we should have done it differently. We switched the order in the second half of the cross-sex. So we had done half an hour, 15-15. And the next 15-15, we switched order, which meant... I got the first 15 minutes and the last 15 minutes, but he had 30 minutes in a row where he's asking me questions. And I think that was an advantage, honestly, um, to have that amount of time to be trying to craft a narrative because that's what he was trying to do. That's that's what he was attempting to do. Um, so what I did is I looked at these sins mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
And uh, let me remind you of uh, what they what they are. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Yeah, I could put this up, but that's right. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. So I looked at the sins. Obviously, there's other lists of sins I could have gone to. But it seemed fair and appropriate to go to the ones that are right there in the context. And what I did was I... Here's 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 my notes. Um, I said, so we come to the center of my denial of the thesis this evening. Please note again the inspired text. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Here is the key. There is hope for all those who have been marked by all the sins previously listed. And please note, these were not just sins of overt action. One of those sins listed was greed or covetousness. Pleonectai is the Greek term. Coveting is an inward disposition. It's a mindset a regular experience of the desire for the things of others. And so I had spoken to some other authors and people who work in this area, and we've all been doing the same thing, and that is how do you come up with a appropriate parallelism, something along those lines, to uh, address that? And so... I said, the verb Paul uses is in the imperfect, eta, such were. It refers to the ongoing experience of these sins and their results in the past. Um, but then there is a change, described gloriously as you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. These are placed in the aorist to point to an action that changes the continuing experience of those in Corinth who had now been freed from the dominion of these sins. So here's my denial. The thesis asks if gay Christian is a biblically acceptable identity for a member of Christ's church. Paul's answer is unequivocal, no. If the sin was ongoing in the past, the washing, sanctifying, and justifying in Christ breaks that dominion and results in a new reality, a new creation. And then I made application. And by the way, Dr. Coles never touched the covetous argument. And I brought it up three or four times. And so he would have had all the time in the world, even during the Q&A at the end, during the audience questions. He could have brought it up. He didn't touch it. I think he found that to be... I don't think that was something that he had attempted to work with before, so he just decided not to, not to go there. It would make no more sense to refer to oneself as a covetous Christian as it would a gay Christian. Even if one were to say, I still experience covetousness, but I simply do not act upon it. Covetousness is a desire for that which God has prohibited. A Christian desires to glorify God, and hence, and here's the key, because this came out in the Q&A, cultivates disciplines and desires that reflect God's will. How is it proper to identify oneself based upon a set of desires 
that flow from our fallen nature and reflect a reality that was broken by washing, sanctification, and justification. I said that the only way around this biblical reality is to replace the radical break posited by Paul with the modern psychological concept of orientation as an innate, unchangeable reality, but that requires abandoning biblical categories. And so, at one point during the Q&A, Gregory said, well, what would you say that I should do? And that gave me a, a few moments to emphasize what it is I'm attempting to say. You will very frequently hear side A and B um, gay advocates say that uh, when they were raised in a church, they were taught to try to pray the gay away. Pray the gay away. That's a phrase that they have utilized. I had, I had never heard anybody speak like that, but whatever. Pray the gay away. And the idea is, um, and as Gregory says in his book, uh, he would pray before going to, to sleep. Lord, please take these desires away from me. Uh, and he'd wake up in the morning and he'd still have these desires. So he was trying to pray the gay away. And what I was seeking to um, biblically and pastorally present and argue is that what needs to be done, and in fact, I, I used as an example, I used Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, Rosaria was watching the debate. We had talked before the debate. And she has spoken with Gregory Coles herself. And so here is a woman who was a lesbian, um, was involved in the movement for years. And it's not her testimony that one day she woke up and boom, everything was different. Her testimony is of a growth and process and sanctification over time based upon the application of the Word of God. She tells a story in her new book, Five Lies, uh, of, was it Psalm 103? I think it may have been Psalm 103. Um, they, they were singing that psalm. They're exclusive psalmody folks. Everything in that psalm went against what she, as a lesbian, had been taught. All the feminist concepts, that there's patriarchy everywhere, and blah, 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 blah. And it was a process of sanctification over time that led to her acceptance of the biblical parameters that were laid out in Scripture. And one of the ways that she was able to, to do that was to be involved um, in ministry in the church and ministry to other Christians. And so she, um, it was suggested to her that maybe one of the best things that she could do um, would be to uh, get involved with other women, uh, helping them take care of their children, helping them with homeschooling. She was a tenured professor, so there are obviously topics that she could preach. 
preach, teach, not gender studies, but <laughs> stuff like that. Um, and it was in cultivating positive desires that those positive desires came to replace the old desires. It was in worship. It was in um, hearing the preached word. It was in growing in uh, faith in scripture and the goodness of God's revelation and the goodness of God's creation. Because over and over again, and I think Rosario would have agreed with this, the, the point came up in my conversation with Gregory Coles that he's basically saying that his same-sex desires are not different in nature than a married man's heterosexual desires if they're outside of marriage. Now, be careful, because they're both sin, right? And it's easy for people to say, well, sin's just sin, you know, da, 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 da. No. My argument in the debate was that Paul uses the same-sex desire, the burning with lust toward one another. And of course, he's he's got a whole bunch of distinctions he wants to make between lusting and ex and a temptation to experience a desire for. So he's 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 divides stuff up into into very uh, distinct categories that come from completely outside of scripture. But his argument would be, well, you're trying to make scripture apply to stuff that it shouldn't apply to. That was he was saying you're going too far with First Corinthians chapter six. That's that's really what it all boiled down to. And so I would say to any of the um, reformed Christians, you know, I had some guys after the debate going, why didn't you go all Cy Ten Bruggenkate on him? <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what that means, but I, I got the idea. Why, why weren't you just much rougher with him? Why, why wouldn't you, didn't you just call him to repentance? Well, I did call him to repentance, obviously, but I called him to repentance in a category that he could understand. Uh, and it would be consistent with his own statements. Um, but I, I think what folks that just want a flamethrower approach, and there are a lot of people like that, uh, don't understand um, is if they have already created a defense mechanism that makes all of these distinctions, you've got to get to the next level below that to demonstrate those distinctions are not representative of the apostolic intention. And that's easier said than done and that's what I was attempting to do I, I think I accomplished that and then in Q&A in cross-examination that's where it's really challenging and so you, you'd see especially at the end of the cross-examination when I'm asking my second 15-minute set of questions you can see me challenging him. I would go to either First Corinthians 6 or Romans 1 
and he would basically reread the passage utilizing the categories he's created about capacity to experience temptation and therefore make that distinct from uh, burning with passion toward one another. Well, that's just, that's just lust. This is a different thing. Um, and so it kept coming back to that until I started challenging that because Paul says these are dishonorable passions. Well, you know, passion, that's a strong word, but it's the desires. He is talking about the desires, just like covetousness. And like I said, he, he didn't, he really seemed to struggle with the covetous aspect because covetousness is a mindset. It is something beyond, um, it is parallel to what he's talking about. And yet Paul says, such were some of you. So it, it does make the argument that I was making, um, but he can't allow that to happen. So that may be why he just never really tried to provide any kind of, of major response on that. And so uh, there was, an, right toward the end, there was an interesting audience question. It's basically, where do you draw the line? Where do, you, where do you draw a line with someone who refuses to repent of their homosexuality? Because I asked him, is your homosexuality something that you need to repent of? And he did not believe that it was. Because it wasn't an act. It's just a capacity to experience temptation in an area. And my point is, but that temptation is disordered. It goes against the creation order, order the creation ordinance. That's the issue. That's that came up as well. I emphasize that very strongly. He rejects that. But I'm like, hey, that's where there's there's a difference between a married man um, having desire for someone that's not his wife. That is that is violation of the God-given gift of sexual desire, but it's not disordered. Not in the sense of having desire for something that is strange flesh. We did have some discussions about um, Sodom and Gomorrah, Jude, briefly, but unfortunately they were during the audience Q&A, and so you have to voluntarily be extremely concise and brief at that point. Um, so the issues of creation ordinance, what is a disordered desire? Something that goes against that creation ordinance. The desire for something is not only, you know, God says, do not have sex with your neighbor's wife. Okay, that's that's completely understandable because that order, that, that desire is innate and built in. Do not have sex with your neighbor, as in another male. No, that's disordered. That goes against the creation ordinance. And that desire, therefore, is itself. Now, there are uh, there are people who write on the subject of homosexuality and who take a strong stance against what would be side A, affirming gay marriage, go ahead and have sex with other men type of stuff, or women, uh, women with women, um, who would say, but the desire is not sin. The desire is not sin. And that's, that's really where the issue is. And I, I think there's a lot of folks, I hope some folks on the reform side will listen to that and will consider because there are some well-known people 
who have basically said, yeah, no, um, just simply uh, consistently experiencing that desire is not itself sinful. Um, and I think because of its disordered nature and the fact that it's a violation of God's creation ordinance, that it has to be. It has to be. Um, so that, that'll come out as you see it toward the, toward the end. There were some books. Uh, we, I, I had asked they have some books by M.D. Perkins uh, available uh, for sale. They had Rosaria's book. I, I didn't even get to buy one myself. I mean, obviously, I, I have it in PDF and stuff like that, but uh, I didn't even get to buy one myself. And the, the one book they didn't have was mine, like I said. Uh, but there were some good resources available to folks there. And it just seems to me that we're on the short end of this stick, even amongst believers. And the reason I say that is the side B perspective is extremely attractive to pastors and others because it simplifies their relationship to the world. Yeah, they still have to take a stand about what marriage is, uh, but they can look more open, not necessarily affirming, but more open and less strict and hateful if they are willing to avoid the disordered aspect of um, homosexuality. And of course, we're, we're having to deal with pedophilia, bestiality. There's all sorts of other stuff there that is now on the table. We were always told, oh no, it doesn't have anything to do with that. No, it, it did, and it does. Uh, but we have to think these things through and we have to have answers to give to people. And we have to think these things through much more clearly for ourselves. I've said for years and years and years that the church is behind the curve on all of this because my generation wouldn't even talk about this stuff. Wouldn't even use some of this terminology, this language that is now just necessary for everybody. Uh, there's no way around it. So um, so there you go. There's a little, a little debate review that was number uh, 182 on the list. And so, assuming that nothing's going to pop up between now and uh, February, then uh, I think I have already, I, I know I, I announced, uh, we have the two debates with Trent Horn in Houston, and then the debate in Tullahoma. And then coming back, we have, we do have the debate because we had thought that wouldn't work, but now it's happening. John six with Leighton Flowers in Houston. That's earlier in the week. I think it's Thursday, and then I think it's Saturday for the Dale Tuggy debate, the uh, Unitarian debate. Also, all those are at First Lutheran in um, in Houston. Well, the. The ones in Houston are the one in Tullahoma, obviously. Isn't it? So that'll be five debates on that trip. Um, and uh, 
yeah, I'm not sure that that was all that wise to do. But anyways, we're going to be doing it, so pray toward the end of that. And right now, Rich is wanting to do a live dividing line from G3, but now that I'm finding out that that means that I'm going to have to, like, stop at Target somewhere and buy more bags <laughs> to carry cameras and microphones and cables and lights and everything else uh, from the unit to to there, uh, we'll see. We will see. Because uh, like I said, I, I'm barely going to have enough space for my stuff. I do not have any extra room. So I will literally, maybe I should, you know, I wonder if the little store here is open. Maybe they'll have a little bag or something I could get there that I might be able to do something with. I don't know. Because um, I'm not going to get to Atlanta. I'm, I'm going to hit Atlanta at rush hour. So I don't even know when I'm going to get parked um, tomorrow night. So we'll see. Well, we will see what will happen. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not really not really sure. Uh, but anyways, thanks for watching The Dividing Line. Uh, if we have a program, it'll be on Thursday from G3. Uh, and if we don't, then we don't. And pray for us, uh, and we'll try to catch up on the trip home uh, and get back to things uh, up through the day after Thanksgiving. And that's when I, I head out again. So uh, thanks for watching the program today, and uh, God bless.